0: The sponsor of this episode is Klaviyo. Klaviyo accelerates momentum for e-commerce businesses and does it in a fast, reliable, scalable, and cost-effective way. See why over 2,500 innovative fashion and beauty brands like Chubby's, Taylor Stitch, and Bonobos sell more with Klaviyo. Learn how they're doing it at klaviyo.com slash glossy dash podcast. Barneys doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your hosting Glossy Managing Editor, Clary Milneas, and today's guest is Jens Grady, the co-founder of the fashion brand, Frame. In this episode, Jens discusses his approach of putting product first, why he doesn't consider his brand to be a luxury brand, and what the next generation of lifestyle designer brands is going to look like. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for joining us, Jens.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So tell us, before you launched Frame, you had an agency called Wednesday, Mm -hmm. is that right? Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your agency background and how that funneled into Frame and and how you used what you learned on the agency side to launch a denim brand.
1: So Eric, who is my uh, partner in Frame, we we started working together almost 18 years ago uh, today. We were working for a guy called Tyler Brule who had a magazine in London called Wallpaper and it was, let's think, early two thousand. So actually, the year two thousand. Mm-hmm. And um, we met. We were both very young. We're twenty-one years old. And we, um, I believed I was that I came to Wallpaper for an editorial job. And as I showed up on my first day, he said, "You know, we have this new agency mm-hmm. uh, called Wink. And and actually, why don't you go up there and." and 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 make yourself useful, which isn't at all what I had in mind. But I met Eric, and we had a couple of great years learning. And I think one of the most important things you can have in life is the opportunity to fail while keeping your job. And we really did a good job of failing. Mm -hmm. So we learned loads. And by the age of 24, uh, I think I just turned 25, we thought we should do this on our own. We should give this a go. And I think the conduit to go at it at such a young age was because we couldn't get a job together somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard to look for a job as a duo. Yeah. So we set up our own agency and we did what we knew how to do, which was to brand and market and advise brands in fashion and beauty
0: mm-hmm. and what would you how would you describe the agency landscape at the time that you launched um your agency what were brands really looking for uh from an outside source at the time obviously we've seen digital marketing change so much over the last 10 to 15 years so at what's where were brands at the time that you launched the company
1: at that point in time it was all about aesthetics mm-hmm. it was about creating the ideal image Which was dissected and analyzed in granular detail by the client and by the audience. And fashion imagery really had or played a major part in setting the tone for a brand at that point in time. I don't think it does today. But at that time, the life was pretty good. I mean, we went for a week and came back with eight pictures and 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 that was called making a living so it was a it was actually a far better time
0: <laughs> to do a lot a lot less with with the same resources
1: Equally stressed, but yes. in hindsight, I don't know what we did with the time.
0: <laughs> so it's obviously changed a lot. And so whenever you saw an opportunity for Frame, where was the agency? Like how had, how had the agency's role changed for fashion?
1: So what happened was Eric was a very talented creative. And I was a mediocre talent. So I had to make myself useful somehow. And while we built the agency and and, and really a few years Later, we were working with big global campaigns for the likes of H and M or um, uh, Balì. Later, Calvin Klein and and and, and more recently um, Montclair and Louis Vuitton. At that point in time, uh, we wanted to grow, but the fashion agency business was a very limited space, and. Both Eric and I are restless individuals. So, and also we weren't at that point in time married and we didn't own a home or uh, a dog or a car. We didn't even have driving licenses. (laughs) And we didn't really have aspirations for any of it. We just wanted to create great things. And we want to create great things for our clients, but we also want to create great things with uh, people, other talented individuals of our own generation. So we had an advertising agency. We then started our own production company, and which were doing our shoots and commercials. We then quickly acquired a PR agency and then another one, and then we were in the PR business. Somehow, accidentally, we thought this is not a great business to be in, um, but we had incredible clients: uh, you know, Christopher Kane and Erdem and Giles and and. Um, and 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 so forth. So we went into selling their collections later into distribution and I don't exactly I can't recall us having a strategy. But somehow over a seven year period we had built this group of companies called the Saturday group. Mm -hmm. And we had offices all over the world and there was hundreds and hundreds of people working in it. And I don't think there was a plan to it. Frame came out of that. It came out of a very simple wish. We wanted to make a product. We had had the great privilege to work with some of the most talented designers and, and creatives and uh, entrepreneurs um, that were around. And, and we've learned so much. And, and at some point you go, we should do this for ourselves. We should try it. But we didn't have a great aspiration. We didn't sit down and craft the master plan of how to build a new lifestyle brand from California. We were sitting in London and said, you know what? Let's make a great pair of jeans and give it to our friends. That's what we did. And I think when Frame launched, which is five and a half years ago, almost six years ago, We didn't have any great aspirations for the brand, other than to make something that we loved making. I'm not so sure that has changed, but the business certainly changed. And we gave it to our friends, which were many of the more known models of the time. And somehow that coincided with this shift in popular culture, where we started to consume content for its visual quality. So we were reading, Daily Mail was not necessarily about Ed Sheeran. It was really becoming more about Alessandro Ambrosio or we'll Carly Klaus. So we were really consuming visual culture and there was no end in sight to customers' appetite mm-hmm. to consume this content.
0: You're talking about like the influencer age.
1: I w- I'm talking about the pre-influencer the, the age. The lead up into it. Yeah before we coined Mm. the vernacular before we created agreements um before it was corporatized Mm. and it feels like a long time ago it's it's five six years ago right in in essence and they were framed because we had worked with many of um those incredible, inspiring women, and they they wore our jeans, and they weren't shy to talk about it. And um, retailers and customers took instant notice. We were very lucky, in fact.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what was your first distribution strategy out of out of the gate with with Frame? Did you just start a site, and then and then it grew from there? Uh, did you have a plan for how you wanted to sell the the jeans? Um, you know, once it sort of hit the masses.
1: At the time, we were running a, a big company out of London. So we didn't have a strategy. I think the strategy was, does anyone really want to sell our jeans? We got Barneys on board. We got Netta Porte on board. We got Ron Herman, I believe. And a few others that came on board early. And my the memory kind of escapes me. Um, Because I don't think we focused on it. There really was not a master plan. We sold it to a few accounts. And then it sold out. And then after six months to a year, we were like, our side project is kind of not a project. It's actually a business.
0: Yeah, when did you realize that this is, okay, I need to focus on this full time?
1: Much later. Much later. Maybe a few years later. I think, you know, today... Frame is available in in probably around 3,000 doors or so. We have five standalone stores with a six opening next month and another 10 openings planned for the following 12. And we have a great direct business. Now it's clearly a business. It's always hard to say what the transition period was. But Eric and I decided three years ago that we were going to sell the agency business that we had built. And that it was time for a new generation to take over the agency and build on what we started. And I think that was the transition to focusing full-time on frame. Mm-hmm.
0: So what changed for your your day-to-day and your outlook on the business? Like, when did you okay, sit down and say, okay, we need a strategy for this thing that's kind of grown on its own while we were focusing a lot of our attention elsewhere? Whenever you were full-time working on frame... Did anything change about how you operated the business? Did you, you know, did you write down and sit down and like write out the plan for, for where it would go next?
1: We are very lucky to have worked, as I said, with a lot of people in the fashion business and have a big network around us. So, of course, you consult the people around you and you get their input. And we have learned so much from people like Remo Rufino has Montclair, who's been a big inspiration um, to how we looked at Frame. Andrew Rosen, who's the founder of Theory, who is uh, Ericsson, my mentor in life and in business. So I think we we had no shortage of amazing people to ask, but in the end of the day, a business and a brand has its own life and it normally goes right when it goes right when, when you are authentic to what you're about. Mm-hmm. Eric and I make clothes for the women and men that surround us in our lives. We don't try to think about a customer. We don't, we don't necessarily try to think about a distribution strategy. My strategy is to be sold where our customers are. Mm-hmm. And we look at our partners in life and... Many of the women and men that we work with, or that we know from the industry, and from our career, which is a twenty-year career in fashion, and if they love what we do, and we are sold where they go, that's kind of the strategy.
0: So, when you say like an authentic brand that, that those people would want, how would you describe the the frame brand and the in the story that it, that it does tell? Because I'm sure, you know, at some point you want to rope in new customers as well.
1: <laughs> I th- I, think, I think that's absolutely right. <laughs> and uh luckily there seems to be new customers who want what we do. I think we the frame brand is trying to capture a sense of casual chic. It's really rooted in the likes of 70s style icons, mainly European, uh like Jane Birkin, for example. And We have taken that aesthetic through an American lens for comfort and fit. That's the foundation of our our collection. But we really make clothes. We're trying to build a wardrobe of great pieces that, you know, you buy a jacket and one year later or two years later, you pull that jacket out because you still look good in it or that dress, or that shirt that you will wear over and over again. And it's fashionable, but it's not fashion. It's more style. It's more casual than than what I would say New York chic is. It's more a reflection of, uh, yeah, I think that if Jane Birkin was active today, she would live in California.
0: Mm -hmm. And wear a frame and work frame. <laughs> so as you mentioned, you're not focused so much on distribution and, and, the, and the end customer. What about the team that you've hired for Frame in the years since it became the full-time business? How have you surrounded yourself with people who know, okay, how to, how to translate something like that into a business model?
1: I look to hire attitude over experience. Mm-hmm. I think experience is, is, is great, but attitude is the most important quality in every single person when you read about other great people they weren't born great you become great through what you do and for what you learn and that's your attitude it's how you go into things and i've we try to attract people to our business that love our product
0: we're going to take a quick break to hear from today's sponsor Clavio. Whether it's being able to execute marketing ideas you didn't know were possible or bringing to life the ideas you didn't have the tools or resources to do before, Klaviyo makes it possible for you to level up. You can try it for yourself at claviocom slash glossy dash podcast. Now back to the episode. And so as you're growing, you have the wholesale accounts in the physical stores. What have you found about the ways, because we, we talked to so many direct to consumer brands at startup and they say that, oh, we're not going to go through wholesale accounts. We're not going to... You know, maybe we'll start with pop-up stores down the line. We want this to build this online community and, and own that customer. What's, what's that strategy been like for you since you started out on the wholesale side um, as a brand that started relatively recently? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a little bit more rare today.
1: It's a really good question. And I thought about this not too long ago. I think too many brands are too focused on the business of the business mm-hmm. rather than the business of making clothes
0: rather than the product itself
1: rather than the product itself distribution which is what we're discussing here Mm -hmm. it's just a way for you to get hold of what I do so there's no better or worse distribution I'm not in the distribution business I'm in the brand business I'm trying to make beautiful clothes to make your everyday that a little bit more chic that's that's what I do As a customer, you want that to be available to you wherever you are. And my mission is to sell just a little bit less than the demand for what I do is. That, I think, is the... If you're buying it directly from Frame, or if you're buying it from one of our retail partners, or if you're going down in Aspen or New York or... Uh, San Francisco or Los Angeles, and you go into a frame store. I'm not so concerned about that. And if distribution changes, so can I, because I'm in the brand business. Mm -hmm. So if e-commerce takes a bigger share of the market, I will focus more of my efforts on e-commerce. If you want me to open stores in the neighborhoods where you live, I'll open stores in the neighborhoods you live. Mm -hmm. I think there's too much focus on the business of the business, because that is controllable. And there's not enough talk about making amazing product. There are direct-to-consumer brands like Glossier and Everlane that I admire so greatly because they make amazing product.
0: So do you think too many of these brands focus on changing the way retail works and in general rather than, rather than focusing on the product?
1: I think it's so much easier to talk about distribution, to talk about your own e-commerce experience and how to improve it. I think it's easier to talk about how how I can invent to make your shopping experience more convenient. But if we if we don't think of ourselves, because obviously we're having this this is a, a, a podcast for people who loves you know, fashion um, and the business. If we think of it as consumers, you want to buy the brand and the product that you love. You're not buying the distribution. Mm -hmm. So I think that I focus on making great products.
0: Right, but it, it's funny though, because it, it makes sense, but it still sounds like the old school designer way of thinking about selling fashion and, and talking to a customer. Why do you think that we're here where we are right now in this you know, quote unquote director to consumer era where so many designers, even like the, the legacy heritage brands that seemed like they could have been around forever are, are struggling?
1: My question to you, are they really struggling? Macy's sells 22, and I'm out of memory, I might be wrong, $22 billion worth of apparel, branded apparel a year. Some of the cosmetic brands individually that we today have written off are three times the size as all of the five hottest beauty startups put together. There's a big difference between perception and reality. But we do know that eventually perception becomes reality. I'm not talking about what is new and what is old from a point of view that something is better or something is worse. I think, I think of myself much like a record label. We try to make great music. Now, how you consume that music on Sirius, on Spotify in a store, it doesn't really at a concert. It doesn't really matter to you, you're consuming great music. Mm-hmm. That's just forms of getting music to you. That's how I see this whole debate. It's just forms of getting what I do to the end customer. I will always try to get my product in the best possible way to the end customer. But it's not an exciting conversation. It would be an exciting conversation for me if I was in the tech business, if I was in the fulfillment business. But at the heart of what I do, I try to make a great pair of jeans that when you put them on, you look at yourself and think, I look great. I look good in this. That's what Eric and I try to do.
0: Right. And do you think that the, the way that people discover brands has changed? How do you get to that point where people discover the product?
1: Immensely. I think it has changed immensely. I think we are in a hit business now. We didn't used to be. I think e-commerce has democratized the fashion landscape, giving new brands the opportunity um, to be seen in a context they couldn't be seen before. We can go back 10 years to a designer floor at the department store in America. And as a young brand, you had zero opportunity to be visible there. There were specific stores that broke new brands and that was it. It was the, the club was very small. If you got into a department store, you were going to be successful. And the customers knew every name of every brand and the story of them that was in their department stores. Today there's hundreds of brands. Customers remembers only a fraction. You can go into the department store and meet new brands every single week. You can go to a big e-commerce retailer. As you select what's new, new brands will be showcased next to established brands like Gucci or Louis Vuitton. That's a platform that never existed before. So it's And just like music, it's easier to distribute. It's easier to be seen but it's a hundred times harder to be memorable. Mm -hmm.
0: And when you say you're in a hits business, do you mean... What do you mean by that?
1: Brands used to present collections that is sold over a longer period of time. Today, brands will have hit products within their collections. You sell more of fewer items and less of more. The customer is overwhelmed by choice. And every season there will be a jean with a fit or a flat or one bag or one shirt or and so forth that will grab the customer's attention and everything else will kind of wash away. That's what I mean. We're in the hit business. Yeah. So we still talk about collections and designers still try to put that together in a digestible format, which the fashion show is about. But customers buying items, they're not buying collections.
0: Right. Cause they, they're going to mix and match and, and high, low dressing, all of those, those trends that have come up the way people shop. So you have to get noticed with, with one standout product. Um, and obviously frame denim has more than, than just a denim brand. So what does that mean for you as you are designing new products and going into categories that you didn't have before? How do you get that same attention if you are, you know, where some people might know you as a denim brand?
1: That is the most difficult thing that we are faced with. We can only nurture a culture of excellence, of knowing who we design for and understand what the customer gives us license to do. Frame exists between nine and five. Well, we say that jokingly. (laughs) we, We exist during the day. Our customer buys luxury. We are not in the shoe business. We shouldn't be in your precious handbag business that you have saved up, that you're trying to make a statement with. We should not be in the evening wear business. Our customers wouldn't give us the license to be. And if we were, we would really demote our own brand because we were sitting ourselves on a pedestal, which we would not deserve. What we do great is your daily wardrobe. And as long as we stay in that space, the customer has allowed us a wide license to create products for them.
0: So it's about knowing knowing your customer and working within those that parameter.
1: Exactly. It's about not confusing brand or brand awareness with a license to do anything. Mm-hmm.
0: So to, to go back to your earlier point about whether these brands, these heritage brands, are struggling or not, because they still have big volume businesses, but the perception might be that they've kind of fallen out of fashion. If you're still you're of course you're still making a lot of money and, and operating at a much bigger scale than than some of the smaller brands that we hear that are doing so well. Do you think that there's a limit now of how big consumer brands? can and should grow that that maybe wasn't the case in the past?
1: There has been some debate if a new fashion brand can break a billion dollars. I think that's a fair argument to be had. We will have it until a fashion brand breaks a billion dollars. I would say historically there's been periods where many brands have emerged and long periods when they have not. Around the late 70s to early 80s, were either founded or became known brands like Armani, Ralph Lauren, Dolce & Gabbana, Versace, uh, Prada, Calvin Klein, Donna Karen, really a long list of brands. It really coincided with the spread of distribution of American department stores, allowing these designers to finance the production of what they were doing and and gain fame and control their companies and control their destinies. Then we really have to wait until 2009 to look at this new generation of brand that came to prominence. Tory Burch and Michael Kors, Alex Wang, Philip Lim. Why did that moment happen? We were in a recessionary period. There was always a floor in every department store filled with something called diffusion brands. And if you're under 25, you have no idea what I mean <laughs> when I say diffusion brands. D&G, Armani Exchange, Valentino Red, that are largely extinct today. And Tory Burch and Michael Kors, in particular, sold the dream of fashion at the more affordable price. But it was distribution that enabled them to grow their business and become the brand, the household names that they are today. I think we are in that time now. I think there's going to be a new generation of brand that have emerged or are emerging over the next five years as the consumer tips from bricks and mortar into purely digital experiences that will become household names. I think that The emergence of brands have a lot to do with changes in distribution
0: right so so what do you think is the marker of this upcoming generation of of brands how are they operating differently than than brands might have in the past
1: they are far more transparent they let their brands be a reflection of themselves i sometimes joke and say i know a lot of brand owners who recycle at home but don't care about their supply chain I think that the, some of the greatest brands coming up today, I think they are authentic to their founders. I think they engage the customers, that the customer own the brand together with the company. I just think that that layer, like we are people, we own a brand and we sell to customers, which I think is really prevalent in, in earlier generations. I think that's becoming more opaque. And I think the brands that are winning, Make sure that the values of the individual is the value of the business.
0: Customers have a lot more control and, and power or influence than, than they might have in the past.
1: Without a shadow of a doubt. And it's far more direct. In the end of the day, having said all of this, it's still about making great product. Right. You've got to make beautiful product. But the brands that will take share are those that eradicates the barrier between brand and people
0: Mm -hmm. because you can't stand on a compelling story alone and you can't get caught up in in all of the fulfillment like you said you're not in the technology business you're not in the fulfillment business you just have to do product first and those things will fall together
1: yeah look at a brand like any 80s 90s lifestyle brand they would portray a lifestyle that they believed you wanted to buy So you would look, you get inspired, and you thought, if I go and buy that polo shirt or I go and buy that trench coat, I buy a piece of that lifestyle. That brand becomes me. I don't think we are looking to brands for a guide to how to lead our lives. Far from it. I think we look at brands that are an authentic part of the life that we lead.
0: So do you think that the the era of the lifestyle brand is over?
1: No, quite the opposite. I think the era of a brand dictating a lifestyle is over. I think the era of a brand being an authentic part of your lifestyle is here.
0: And the brands that succeed are are the ones that, that can fit into that lifestyle.
1: Yeah, and I mentioned Glossier and Everlane earlier. I think they are great examples, but I think older brands could be great examples too. I think Montclair is a great example. I think Patagonia is a great example.
0: Right. So do you consider Frame to be a luxury brand? No. Why not?
1: Because I think central to our model is passing on value to the customer.
0: And luxury brands don't do that?
1: In my opinion, maybe not.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Value is in the, the quality of what you're getting for the price that you're paying.
1: Exactly right.
0: So, so it's a little bit, yeah, more in the middle. Do you think that? So, I, I think we're almost out of time. Um, but just to wrap up, with you know where all of this is headed, do you think that there's going to be much of a distinguisher left between something like luxury brands or direct-to-consumer brands or lifestyle brands, if the customer is dictating so much of where these brands fit into their lives, and and it's less on the on the job of the brands to do that anymore.
1: But it goes back to something I said earlier about not having a great strategy other than to design for the people that surrounds us. We're not trying to be a lifestyle, we're not mapping it out. We are trying to fill the world in which we exist with beautiful product. And we try to do that for people, and our critics are the people that surrounds us. I believe in a world of large global niche brands. I think there's a frame woman in and man, in every town in America, and in most cities around the world. So my job is how do I connect to the woman and man from Shanghai to Stockholm, that feels that frame resonates with their aesthetic and how they view themselves.
0: And you keep the focus around the the product that you actually venture out to do. Like you mentioned, you're not going to go outside of of where that customer has demanded you to go.
1: That's right. I do think Frame have the license from its customer to create far more categories than we do today. As long as we remember where where in her life we have a place.
0: Well, it sounds simple when you put it that way.
1: I'll try to make it simple. Just
0: just make great product, that's all. <laughs> well,
1: it's crazy. the hardest thing in the world. It's like telling a musician to make a great song.
0: Exactly. You can't control it. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. Special thanks to Gianna Cappadona, the producer of this podcast. If you've been enjoying this podcast and aren't a Glossy Plus subscriber yet, it's time to consider joining to get access to all of Glossy's content, member events, ticket discounts, Slack chats, and more. As a reward for listening, use the code podcast at glossy.co slash plus to get 20% off an annual subscription. And as always, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher and Anchor FM and leave us any feedback you have.